we are talking about finding grace in the Old Testament. Now, without a doubt, I would say grace is one, is one of the most important doctrines of all of, all of Scripture. When we look, wherever we look in Scripture, we always find that salvation is by grace, grace through faith, and it is always based upon the finished work of Christ from God's point of view. But that's where grace ends before the day of Pentecost. When taken literally, the Old Testament believer, whether prior to the giving of the law or after the giving of the law, they did not live by grace. Once the law was given to Israel, there were benefits, certainly there were, but they were all contingent upon obedience to the law. In other words, benefits were earned. Now keep in mind, if you earn something, it's not unmerited favor. When I was working, I never once went up to my boss like this and took my paycheck. I never once felt that it was grace when I got it. I earned it. I earned every penny of it. And those of you who work know what I mean. You earn your money. It's not grace. It's not unmerited favor. There's a big difference. Now, when it, what is striking is when you see the benefits for the law. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. Let's take a moment just to go there. Deuteronomy 28. I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I just want you to see that the benefits that were offered to Israel were not the same as what we have. So people who talk about having anything to do with the law ought to realize then they should be talking about the benefits they're going to get. Well, here's the benefits. Now, some people might like this. Deuteronomy 28, beginning at verse 1. It shall come to pass that if you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, that the Lord God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. Is Israel set on high today, above all the nations of the earth? No, not at all. And these blessings shall, shall come upon thee and overtake thee, if you shall hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God. Now here they are. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flo and flocks of sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket, blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and when the blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies to, that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way, and shall flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in, in thy storehouses, and, and that all thou settest thy hand unto. He shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And you keep on reading down through here, and you see, what is it? These are all material blessings. Now, hold your finger, go over to Ephesians chapter 1 for just a moment, and we'll go back to our introduction. But I want you to see this and make it very clear. Those who want to put you under the law, those who want to have some form of it, ought to be thinking about what you got under the law as benefits. But you have a problem, because when you come to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing to a, the most educated church in the New Testament, and look what he has to say in verse 3. After his introduction, the first thing he has to say, which tells you what this letter is about in great measure, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all, what does it say? Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And it goes on to detail the things that happen. The things we have are all spiritual blessings. Now, it would be nice if I could tell you today, if you were beaten as a Christian, that God would increase your bank account, that God would give you a nice newer car, give you a bigger house, but I'm not going to tell you that because that's not what's going to happen. That's not what's going to happen. That's not planned for us. So, now, when you look at those blessings we saw, 
What is striking in, in Deuteronomy 28 is that the blessings are the first 14 verses, but in verses 15 through 68, you have 53 verses of curses, of penalties that dealt with disobedience to the law. I don't know about you folks, but four to one, that's not a very good odds. Four to one against you. Four times as likely to get something wrong. That, I don't think I'd like that at all. And if you go through those benefits, now we're not, or those curses, we're not going to do it right now, but if you read verse 15 through 68, what you will find out is there's not one thing that deals with eternal destiny. The law did not, did not have anything to do with whether you, say, whether you went to heaven or whether you went to hell, the paradise. You, you didn't have anything in the law that would send a person to hell. If you read through there carefully, the greatest and the most final penalty of all for the nation of Israel, if they disobeyed the law, they would be kicked out of the land of Israel. You read it, verses 63 through 68. So, it's pretty obvious that nobody should want to live by the law. And the Old New Testament is clearly revealed that the Old Testament saint lived by the law, so this study is not going to be looking at how they lived as far as grace is concerned in the Old Testament. But no one that takes the Bible literally would ever make the mistake of thinking we're under those, under those provisions. We are not. We're not. There's abundant, there's abundant evidence, and we don't have to take the time to prove it. It's pretty obvious. Now, in the, in, the, in the first paragraph, that last line is very important. Grace and law and grace are not compatible and do not work together. Those who want to give you a thou shalt and thou shalt not regulation, they're making up a work. Does grace cooperate with that? Look at Romans chapter 4. There's two verses in Romans we need to look at, and you need to see those because if you grasp this, then you realize that anybody who wants to make up a set of rules for you to live by is completely thwarting grace. If they're thwarting grace, then you're not going to be able to live as a spiritual believer. As Pastor Dave said last night, I believe it's something like carnal. Pastor, if you listen to Pastor Dave last night, he, he nailed that one down pretty good. I thought, he's stealing my thunder. No, not really. But if you look at the fourth verse of Romans, Romans 4, verse 4, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So it's not grace if you work for something. But the 11th chapter, if you look there, chapter 11 and verse 6, it's even more pointed. Now, Paul's been talking in chapters 9, 10, and 11 about what happened to Israel because there were those at Rome that had no idea what happened to Israel. They couldn't figure out. God was working with Israel. All of a sudden, what's going on with Israel? They don't see anything happening to them. Well, they're set aside. In the process of saying that, he says in verse 5, Even so, at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Now notice, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So if it's grace, it's not works. If it's works, it's not grace. So if you had to live by the law, could you live by grace? No. It's absolutely impossible. It says that right here. So now, here's where things begin to get a little more sticky with some of our uh, theologians of today. There are many events that, looking back from the vantage point of the New Testament, we might call them grace. We might say that, for example, we might say that God gave the land of Canaan to Abraham for his seed by grace in Genesis 15, 18 to 21. Now, it's called a covenant, but it was not something that Abraham earned. He didn't do one thing to earn that promise that was made to his, that covenant that was a promise to his heirs. 
he did not earn that. And furthermore, when Moses led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, the people of Israel hadn't done anything. They didn't deserve to be let out. God did that because he had made a covenant to Abraham and said, I'm going to give it to your seed. And he predicted they would come there after 400 years. And so God did it by grace. They did not earn this. Now, I know it's not called grace in the, in the scripture, but I think many Bible teachers would call it grace, and I wouldn't have a big quibble with that. They didn't earn it. So this study is not to find places and events that Bible scholars and teachers will call grace in the Old Testament. That kind of study has been done by others. And it's obvious that God did a lot of things in the Old Testament that they did not deserve, that were unmerited favor. But this is where most studies stop. They mostly stop at just identifying things that you could call grace. However, I think, and this is a key point, however, the next logical step should be to look at the Hebrew text and see if there is a specific name given to what the New Testament would call grace. In other words, is there some kind of Old Testament equivalent word to the New Testament word for grace? Now, I haven't seen anybody do this. Now, Pastor Dave, you help me here. I haven't seen anybody deal this. Has anybody done the research in the Old Testament looking for a word that's equivalent to grace? Have they? Ah, well, see, then I, I stand corrected because I said I haven't, I didn't know of any of them, but then again, I didn't ask Pastor Dave. I would have found out. <laughs> it's awful nice to have you, Hebrew professor, sitting up here. I had two different men taught Hebrew. One was a, one was a THD that majored in Hebrew, and the other was Pastor Dave. But do you know the, better, the best Hebrew teacher I had is right there. He's my friend, and I have a, I have a, lot, a lot of respect to him, and I wouldn't be able to do this today if I hadn't been one of his students. Now, he had the nerve to say I was one of his better students. I don't know why. I didn't even offer him any money to say that, but he did say that one time about me. He said, one of better students. Now, so we want, uh, our, our goal today, then, is going to be, can we find a word that is equivalent to grace? Now, to my knowledge, the word I'm going to pick, and I'll have to ask Dave about it, I don't think anybody ever took cassette as being grace. Okay, so I, there I stand. I stand correct there. I'm going to pick a word that no one's gone for, and we'll show you why. But before we do that, I want to, I want to share something about the Hebrew language. Now, I had the privilege of teaching beginning Hebrew in sec, part of second-year Hebrew in seminary for several years. And I, I learned to love the language. It's, it's a fun language. It really is. And we're going to go there first, and you'll see why in a moment, because we want to show you something that will help you understand when we find the word grace why it is easy to miss it because of the nature of the Hebrew language versus the nature of the, of the Greek. So biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew, this is the bottom of page one on our notes, are different in many ways. Hebrew has a word order just like English does. Now we have subject, verb, object, but Greek used, or Hebrew used verb, subject, and object as illustrated in Genesis 1-3. It's Yamer, Elohim, Yahi, or, Vayahi, or. That's for day's benefit. <laughs> That's Genesis 1-3. Now, literally, the text says, if you take it word for word, it says, and said Elohim, let light become, and came to be light. Now, if we'd put that in English order and say, and Elohim said, let, let light come to be, and light came to be. Now, that's our translation, but that's the way it should be taken. Now, biblical Greek, on the other hand, doesn't have a set word order. It has a case system. And so you can tell the case of the subject by the ending that's on the end of it. And therefore, there's no word order in Greek, which can really drive you crazy. But what happens with the, the Greek is that you can put words in a certain order to put an emphasis on them. For example, you put a word at the beginning of a sentence and you're putting an emphasis on it. And I have in the footnotes, I have one reference down at the bottom. I always, it's my favorite. 
if you look at Hebrews 4.12, the first word in the sentence in Greek is living. So in other words, the writer says, for the word of God is living. That's for my friend, one of my good friends back in uh, Memphis. He says, don't pound on the pulpit. <laughs> so I did that for Dave, Mr. Dave Penny, my good friend back in Memphis. So there are a lot of differences between the two languages. And the most notable is that the biblical Hebrew reads from right to left, unlike English, which reads left to right. So when you have an interlinear, I have one back there, it makes it, it's fun because they put it in the English order, which is backwards for Hebrew, and it makes it kind of funny to read. But that's not the biggest hurdle. The, what, really the big hurdle is that really gets people is the structure of the language, but before that, it's the letters. If you look at Hebrew letters, they, they don't look like anything like words or letters that you'd recognize. They read backwards, and they look like these strange things, and what are they, squiggles on paper? Does someone... Did someone just drop ink on the paper from a pen and just shake it out? No, it's just the letters are different. And so it is easy and it intimidates first-year students in Hebrew to look at that. But if you can get beyond that, actually Hebrew is a fairly simple, straightforward language. But I think the biggest difference, what really makes it different, is the fundamental structure of the language. Greek, biblical Greek, tends to be a very logical language. Now, Greek today I don't think is quite the same. It's gotten sloppy from what I've read, but the biblical Greek of Paul's time, the Koine Greek of its time, was precision. You could make things stated so cut and dried. And you can see that, for example, in the book of Hebrew, or Romans, rather. If you look at Romans, you have this lawyer laying out this case in beautiful structured order that's just cut and dried, beautifully done. However, biblical Hebrew is suited to convey emotion. Now, even a casual reading of the Psalms will show you that there's a lot of emotion that is there, and things are said in an emotional fashion, and that's the difference between these two languages. Now, I'm not saying, for example, I'm not saying that the New Testament Greek doesn't ever express emotion, and I'm not saying Hebrew never presents a logical argument. It's just that the difference between the languages, the tendency is. Now, this is going, now we're, we're going to get into, the, you're going to see just in a moment why we're going through this. Because the manner in which Hebrew expresses emotion is in the verbs itself. Now, this is, this is fun. Hebrew has seven different stems for the verbs, and all of your verbs are just three letters long. You can imagine that in English. We don't have all of our verbs are not all three letters. They're all three letters long, primarily. And you go from one verb stem to another by changing the vowel pointing. Now, the vowel pointing, if you've ever looked at a Hebrew text, you'll see letters and you'll see little dots underneath them. That's called the vowel pointing. Now, you change that vowel pointing to go from one stem to another. Now, you look at your notes. For example, I have here, now I know it doesn't look like anything you'd recognize, but it's katal. It's a simple active form of the verb. Now, they use, this in the they use this in paradigms to teach Hebrew because this particular word katal occurs in all seven stems of the language. And not every word in Hebrew, not every verb does. There's only a handful of them that do. And so they pick this one even though it means to kill. So it's a simple act if it means he killed. But now by simply changing a little bit of the, of the vowel pointing, you come up with he slaughtered. You notice if you look over there, you see the difference? You have a dot where there looked like there was a plus sign and you have a dot in the middle of that second letter and two dots underneath it. It's pronounced katel. It goes from katel to katel. What's the difference? Well, katel means he slaughtered. Okay, now, let me ask you a question. Are you more dead from being slaughtered than being killed? 
Really? Are, are you more dead? Well, what's the difference between saying someone was slaughtered and someone was just killed? There's only one difference. It's emotion. It's the passion that is there. Now, that is, the, that is one of the key points in understanding Hebrew. If, you're going to, if you ever do any word studies, any of you guys that are interested in doing word studies in Hebrew, be aware of the fact that there's going to be words that may look similar, but you may overlook them because there's emotion packed on top of them. And we're going to see that. So we shouldn't be too surprised if the word for grace in Hebrew is going to be more tied to emotion, unlike the New Testament word for Greek. And so, as I put it here, our observation that biblical Hebrew expresses emotion by its very nature should also be helped in doing comparative word studies. If you look at words in the Old Testament, if you look at any, any word that you think, the words for temptation, the words for praise, you're going to find there'll be a difference because the Hebrew is going to have some emotion built into it, which may make it easy to overlook or miss. Now, so to find a word for, a biblical word for, in Hebrew for grace, we're going to begin with a word that is mistranslated grace and doesn't mean grace at all. So point number two on here. A word mistranslated grace, and it's the word hain, and you'll notice it's chen, they, they anglicize it to be that, and now I have H2580. Now, the reason I use these numbers, you're going to see these numbers through here, H, capital H, and, uh, and letters afterward, that is so that anyone that has access to or uses the eSword Bible software can trace this word. Now, if you want to talk to me after between sessions, I'll be glad to tell you more about it. But you can use this free Bible software and find every, every location of this word without knowing the Hebrew by just putting this word in and using it. It'll bring up every verse, and you'll see how it's translated. So you can do a lot of work, and it's a free software program. Now, I don't know about you folks, but anything is free I'll take, except maybe the common cold, although I'm <laughs> if I had to pay for it, I think I'd take it free. Now... This word, it comes in a noun, and it comes in a verbal form. And you can see that here. The verbal form is H2603, and they occur 77 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's a big problem. As with many Hebrew and Greek words, they are not translated consistently. That drives scholars up the wall, because then I have to have folks trust me for what I say. And it'd be nice if everybody had Esau, and they could look it up and say, yeah, he's telling us the truth. This is, this is the correct... Because words can be translated three or four different ways, and you wouldn't even know it's the same word. And we're going to see a couple of them in here that are going to show you that. So, this word, hain, is translated favor 26 times and grace 38 times. Now, if it's translated grace 38 times into King James, it's going to cause people to think that this is the word for grace. It is not the word for grace. It isn't, because a careful study of the two forms of, of the H2580 and 2603, Hanan and Hain, are going to show quickly that neither one of them means grace. But because it's translated grace so many times, it, it serves to confuse people in their search for what the word for grace in the Old Testament is. Now, one of the most important rules in doing a, a, a word study in Greek or in Hebrew is that whatever meaning that we assign to a word, if we define it, it's got to fit every use of that word in context. You can't have a word that means one thing here and something completely different somewhere else. That's not a definition. A definition, it has to fit every place it's found. Now, that may seem like it's technical, but to get some of the precision 
if you want to know the word more accurately and a little bit with greater precision, you need to, you need to realize that we have got to find a solid meaning for its words like this one we're using. So, if it doesn't fit, you have to go back to the drawing board and go through it again. Now, we define this word, hain, in its, in its, in its noun, a verbal form, as favor or approval that one earns from another, and therefore it isn't grace. Now, you can see that because this word, hain, is, is, is found with the word matzah, which is the verb to find, about 42 times in the Old Testament. I've got to stop here for a moment. In uh, teaching Hebrew and teaching vocabulary, we oftentimes would try to find gimmicks to help people remember words. And so my, my gimmick for this, I don't know why I made it up, but I said, the way you remember this word is, I found in my matzo ball. That's, that's how they remembered it. There's some, there's some other ones that are good, but I found in my matzo ball. And there's, there's one for, we should tell them sometime about that one pastor day for the tent. Uh, uh, we'll say that. That's, that's probably not in the best of taste, but there's, there's a really funny one. It's maybe not in the best sense. But so, when we find, so to clarify what this word hain means is to see some of its pairings with this word which means to find. And so you'll find it means to gain approval. Now I want to show you a couple references to this so you can see it so there won't be any question. And so those of you who want to really study this, you can take these, these Strong's letters and use ESOR to track them through and see that I'm not making it up. I'm not, I like what Pastor Kevin says occasionally. He said in front of the, in, in a sermon, he says, now I'm not making any of this up. And I thought, no, I, I, that's a quote. I'm going to quote him. So as Pastor Kevin would say, I'm not making any of this up. Now, the first place that it is used together is you find in Genesis 6, verse 8. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6 for a moment. I have to remember, I only have one hour. At, the first pastor I had, he used to say, the longer I preach, the longer I preach. And I found out that's true. <laughs> so you find that the first time it's paired together, if you look, you'll see down in verse, let's see, verse 9. Okay. Verse 8, rather. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, stop there for a moment. It says, Noah was a perfect man. Now, in verse 9, you see he was a just and perfect man. Now, if you have two words used together, they don't mean the same thing, do they? I mean, if, I, if I'm going to say that, was a, that, that Pastor Kevin did a good job and a good job, would I say it twice? I mean, why would I do that? So if you have, the point we're making here is this word for perfect is not a word that means sinless or anything of this sort. In fact, in your footnote down there, you can see that it is used of animal sacrifices that were with, translated without blemish. They were complete. They were what they should be. And so Noah was a complete man. He was a righteous man. Now you have the word just. And the word just is an important word because it's the normal Hebrew word for someone that is righteous. Of course, now in English we have just and righteous and they mean the same thing. And, they, and the word that you have here, the Hebrew word sadiq, H66, 62, is the word for righteous. So this is a righteous man and he's also a complete man. Now, when you look at this, you find in context that Noah had done some things that God approved of. Because if you look at Genesis 6, 
you'll notice it says, beginning at verse 1, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children unto them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Men of, I like the Hebrew, men of the name. So, this was going on. The sons of God came in, and they were infiltrating the human race, and there were giants, Nephilim born, and there's a handout we have on that you can see in the bottom, at the back. And these individuals were corrupting the human bloodline. And so, if you look down here, generation occurs twice, and it tells you something, that the way this man was generated was he was human. This is one of the things that pleased God about this man, is that he did not get involved with the Nephilim, with the Rephaim. He didn't get involved with the sons of God. And this corruption of the human bloodline, he did not participate in. And that was pleasing to God. And you also, you can see one other thing. It says that Noah walked with God. Now, verse 9. Now, if you remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, we're not going to go there, but you can make a mental note of Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. God walked on the earth up until the time of the flood, at least that long. And those who wanted to walk with him had to seek him out and go look for him and find him. And that pleased God. So Noah did things to gain favor with God. He did things that pleased God. Now, he was a saved man. He said he was a righteous man. But he also did things that pleased God. So he found favor. He earned it. Now, you'll notice that we have on our notes here the generation occurs twice. And this is important because the first generation is the normal word for the descendants of a man and a woman. The second word in Genesis 6-9 is a different word. It means, it's actually the idea of a circle. The circle, drawing a circle, you have, here's a person in the middle, you draw a circle on this is his life. His life is contained within this circle. The circle of his lifetime. So what it means is that Abraham, or that Noah was in the, in the circle of his lifetime, he was without blemish. He did not have any contamination in his bloodline. Now, if you read down a little bit further, you'll see, look at verse 12 of Genesis 6. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Those who do not understand that the sons of God in the Old Testament means angelic beings are simply not taking the Bible literally. If you take it literally, you're faced with the fact that's who they were. So, they came in and says, God looked upon the earth, verse 12, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way on the earth. Now, it's all flesh. It isn't just humans. So there are other things that happen. If you've ever, if you've ever read any mythology, any of, the, any of the nations that have ancient mythology and some of the weird creatures they have, you know what? There might be some basis in fact for some of them. There just might be some basis in fact because it says all flesh had corrupted his way. Now, the word for corrupt means to ruin something permanently. Because if you look at verse 13, God says, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence and, and, and violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That word for destroy, it's the same word for corrupt. It's the same identical Hebrew word, just translated differently. So in other words, our point is that in a context, all flesh had corrupted, it's clear it means that they, they've ruined, they've destroyed something beyond any chance of restoration. 
the human bloodline was ruined, and all those people, beyond any chance, there was no way to get that Rephaim blood, that Nephilim blood, out of the human race. Now, you'll see why we call them Rephaim and Nephilim if you look at the, at the handout we have on that. But the sons, and, the sons of, the, of the, uh, these offspring, they were corrupt. There was no way to get that blood out of there. Now, when it says corrupted as well, you might say, well, Don, how did you get this idea the bloodline was corrupted? Well, you'll notice down in our notes we have H1870. It's a word that's translated way, and it's used in a number of different ways. Now, when it says all flesh had corrupted its way, it's not talking about how we get from here to there. If you look over at, at one of its uses, you see it in, in Genesis chapter 18, and I want you to see this. Now, folks, one of the things I think you really ought to insist, when you hear somebody teach the Bible, if they will say that this word means this or this word means that, they should show you an example. They should show you in Scripture, because if they don't, how do you know they're telling you the truth? How do you know that they're not some kind of a wacko? There's a few wackos out there. Just watch some of the, some of the stories on YouTube. You find out there's a bunch of religious leaders that are crazy. But now this word does mean a way of, and so in, in chapter 19, verse 31, Right after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, now I don't think you can blame Lot for this. I know people want to blame Lot and they call Lot the backslider. Uh, the New Testament doesn't call him that. He didn't have the New Testament to live by, so he didn't know he was supposed to separate from unbelievers. Nobody gave him First Peter or nobody gave him any of Paul's writings. But you'll notice, beginning at verse 30, and Lot went up to Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him. For he feared to dwell in Zoar and he, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. Now listen to this. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old and there's not a man in earth to come into us after the, manner of man, after the manner of all the earth. What do you think they're talking about? Well, you read down a little bit further. They got their father drunk and cohabitated with him. So when it says back here in, in the sixth chapter... All flesh had corrupted their way. It's looking at the way of reproduction. Now, animals are not supposed to breed with other animals. You know, you don't ordinarily want to breed things together that don't match. And if you have the sons of God taking on human flesh and coming into the human race, that's corrupting the bloodline. That's, that's not normal. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. So, there's no way to get the, them out of there. So you can see, in terms of our study... Then on top of page, we're on page four, if you're following along. Therefore, Noah's bloodline was not affected by the intrusion of the sons of God. His bloodline was all human. He was fully human, and so were his three sons. Now, I believe in Genesis chapter six through eight, because there were only eight humans on the ark, I think that means those were the last eight humans that were not corrupted. Now, I can't prove it, but I can say it sure looks like that to me, because there were only eight individuals that joined on the ark, and the reason they were supposed to get on the ark is because God was going to judge the world for what it was doing. And if these others were there, if there were other people there that didn't cohabitate and get involved with Rephaim, the sons of God, we're not told. So it looks to me like there were only eight people. Now that's, if I can stop for just a moment, just a quick aside. Satan has always tried to destroy the program of God. And one of the things in scripture that I find actually close to being amusing is Satan can get so close, so close and at the last second, just like a Star Wars finish. I always remember, I always think of the Death Star in the first one. You remember how the Death Star is powering up to blow up the planet? It's powering up, powering up, and all of a sudden those two tubes, those two uh, 
torpedoes go in the tube and bam, there it goes, just at the last possible second. Well, that's kind of what it looks like here. And God does that to this, uh, you know, it looked like, for example, when Herod was going to have Satan stood up Herod, he was going to kill Christ. It got so close, but Joseph was warned to leave town with his wife and with his new son. Just in a nick of time. And every time you turn on Satan, gets so close, it... I wonder how Satan takes all of that. That's just an aside to think about. It's no wonder Satan is such a, such a lousy person to know. Well, anyway, lousy, we don't want to know him, really. So, so finally, I would say that, that Noah's finding favor with God in the Old Testament was because he did some works. He did things that were works, and therefore they can't be called grace. He found favor with God because he's a righteous man. He found favor with God because he kept his bloodline pure. And he found favor with God because he walked with God. Remember Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. You had to go looking to find God when he walked on earth. You had to search to find him. And God would be pleased with those who would do so that were believers. So, oh, and here's a good one coming up. Here's another example of showing why that this word does not mean grace. Good old Jacob, and another one of his, you notice I put in another of Jacob's attempts to deceive Esau. Our word, is, our word for favor is paired with defined again, and you see I have some references here. Now, you've got to give Jacob credit. If there was ever a, ever a shrewd person who would do whatever it takes to get his way, who would be willing to do anything, including grovel, he would do it. This man was remarkable in the fact that he just, he didn't seem to care what he did. Now, we know that he hadn't seen Esau for over 20 years. Now, you can see that in, in Genesis 31, uh, 41, if you want to take a look at that. But he hadn't, he'd been gone. You recall, he had to go because he stole his brother's birthright, and he stole the blessing off his brother, and his brother had decided, you notice point number two, he had determined to kill Jacob for his deceit. Well, now, really, when you look, stop and look at it, did, did Esau have a right to be kind of upset with him? Uh, in a way he did, in a way he did with, Esau did sell his birthright, but on the other hand, what Jacob did, that whole thing, you talk about a dysfunctional family, you should read that account of how the Rachel favored one and Isaac favored the other, and they, it's like they were, you talk about a dysfunctional family, folks ain't nothing new under the sun, dysfunctional families were there a long time ago, ain't nothing new. It's not, that's something that never happened. So, now, when Esau came to meet Jacob, when he's coming back, you'll notice point number three, Esau came to meet him with 400 men. Now, I don't know about you, but let me see. My brother hated me back 20 years ago. He wanted to kill me. Now he's coming to see me with 400 men. Uh, does that sound like it's going to be fun and games? Sounds to me like I'm in trouble. <laughs> 400 men, he will kill me. So, if you look at 33, Genesis 33, verse 10, this I want you to see. This man had no shame. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could bring myself to do what he did, but let's look at what he did. He talked about, he, he just groveled before his brother. Look at, at Genesis 33, 10, and it's kind of, uh, well, it's almost, let's put it just honest, it's almost sickening to read it. Uh, so, Esau, you notice that uh, we have in here that Esau, d Jacob gave Esau, you'll notice it says 200 female goats and so forth under point E. But look what Jacob said is, is 
Esau says, no, no, I have enough, I have enough. And finally Jacob makes him, persuades him to keep it. But look what he says in verse 10. And Jacob said, nay, I pray thee, if I have found grace. Now there, I have found favor. He's, he's earning it, isn't he? He's earning it by this gift. Yes, he is. If I found favor in your sight, then receive the present from my hand. Therefore, I have seen thy face. It is as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. What? Read that again. As though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me? Are you kidding me? Now here, this, this man, you talk about, here's deceit again. This is, I don't think he really felt that way. Well, maybe he did because he knew his four, the 400 men were standing out there. But it's just, there's, there's no question. There is no question at all about this man that he didn't, this was, this was not, he earned this. He was trying to buy his brother off. He was trying to earn his approval. And that's your word. Now, I think we've chosen some of the, uh, the clearest places you can see. And I do, have some, I do have a handout in the back. There's two handouts that you can look at later. Uh, call them addendum, where you can see these, the words used together. You can see the, the use of the word favor and to find. There's, there's, you have a lot of information there, and I hope it's something that will make you want to study it because there's a, lot of good, there's a lot of good information. There's a lot of stories back here, you know. And if God has preserved these all this time for us, do you think maybe it's because we should know what they say? Do you think maybe we should go back and study them? Now, I've, I've taken the time as I've, as I've been around. I've pastored a few years as well as teaching seminary. And I've had, I've had the, the blessing and the good fortune of being under some really fine men that were Bible teachers. Pastor Dave was my pastor for a good 10 years. Actually, he's been my pastor forever. He's, been, he's a pastor's pastor. He never forgets his students. And I've sat under Kevin's ministry. And, you know, they teach the Christian life very well. They teach it so well that... I can't think of anything I could add to it. So, you know, I got thinking years ago, what about there's 39 books back here in the Old Testament? Nobody ever talks about them. What kind of wealth is there back there? And the more I go back there, you know what I find? I find wealth. If you want to know about the character of God, try reading Isaiah chapter 40 through 66, and you will find in there some of the most remarkable things said about what God is like, about his greatness, his transcendence. I like the word, one of my favorite verses is that he can tell the end from the beginning. In, in Isaiah 46.10, my God can tell the end from the beginning. Nothing takes God by surprise because he can tell you the end before it even started. Now that helps you to understand your God. Oh, no, I know it's, it's not the same as knowing how to overcome your flesh. But it is telling you something about how you can depend on God. He knows your needs. The one who fills all the heavens. We find, for example, in 1 Kings, after the, after the temple was dedicated, that Solomon said, The heavens and the heaven of the heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built? So that all the universe can contain God. Now, how does that matter to you or I? Oh, I'll tell you how it matters. Here, down in this little speck in the corner of the universe, is this little tiny dot. And on this little dot is this little guy with a great big mouth. That's me. This guy with a great big mouth who's worried about everything. Wait a minute, I'm worried when my father is bigger than the whole universe and has all the power? What, am I crazy? You see how that affects me? What is written in the Old Testament has a lot of value. So I've made it my point to try and fill in some of the things that other men just don't have time to go after. If you're going to teach the Christian life and do it well, you don't have a lot of time to chase back through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and so forth. But I have the time. 
And so I found that there's just nothing but blessing upon blessing to be found in the Old Testament. Now, I don't live by it, but I sure enjoy it. Now, now we get down to the point. Here's where I'm going out in the limb. So you guys that have chainsaws, go ahead and fire them up. Because I'm going out in the limb, and if you want to cut me off, go ahead. I've always said that, and I never get too many laughs for it. It's supposed to be funny, people. Come on now. I haven't been a comedian all these years for nothing. The word that means grace, it is a word some of you may be, have heard of, kesed. It is a very important word. It is used 249 times. Now, I believe this is the word that means grace. Now, here's where I don't think anybody's gone out. Pastor Dave has, has read much wider than I have on this subject, and he's never found anybody that's ever said this word means grace. But when we get through with it, I think you're going to see that it does mean grace. And you're going to see why we talked about Hebrew being an emotional language, because there's an emotional component that's, that's brought in with grace that you don't see in the New Testament. But so we start off here, and we still have, some, we still have about 10 minutes. Good. To our knowledge, no theologian or grammarian has taken a position that this kesed, and this H2617, if you use Esword, you can find all the uses, and I suggest if you don't have it, you can download it for free. You can't get a better price than that. I don't know if anybody that's done it to find it. Now, there's, a, there's an inherent danger, of course, in taking a position that no one else has taken. You could just be a wacko. But if this study proves to be correct, I have, an, I have an obvious question to ask. Why hasn't someone else arrived at these conclusions? Why hasn't someone else found this? If I can see it, I'm not a Rhodes Scholar, folks, and I'm, I'm not going to sit up here and say I, I am the most knowledgeable man in the Old Testament. There's a guy sitting right over here that knows more than I do. And he knows as well as I do. There's a lot that we don't know and understand. But if this conclusion hasn't been, I can't understand why someone hasn't found it. The only thing I can suggest is the way the Bible commentaries are written. If you look at them too, too often, what you're going to find is a little evidence of, of uh, original work. And in fact, there's some commentaries that will read word for word like another commentary. Did you know that? And they don't even necessarily give credit. In other words, it's what we call plagiarism. I have it in a footnote. You can read it down there in a footnote. Take time to glance at that footnote. Two commentaries, one written several hundred years before the other. So I think the, the, the newer one probably copied from the older one. The older one may have copied from someone else. We don't know. Now, if you see commentaries doing this kind of work, it tells me why that they haven't found what we're looking at here today. Because they don't want to do the work. They copy from someone else. They think that these men before me, these great men, they've already learned everything. Well, you know what? I have a teacher. I've had some good teachers, but I have an even better teacher than that. I have the Holy Spirit that indwells me. And you know, if I take time to look into his word and look at the uses of this word, you know, the Holy Spirit can turn on the lights and say, here, Don, this is what it means. I don't have to go and see other men. Now, it's not that I'm saying that I'm better than them. I don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying I'm some, something above these other men. I, I don't know anything about most of the other men. I don't worry about them. I'm only responsible for me. But what I do know is that the Holy Spirit can take this word and open it to me, and he can show me what's there. And all I have done is gone through the 249 uses of this verb, or 248, and looked at how it's used, and made notes on what I saw. It took some time, yes. It's work, yes. But it's nothing that someone else couldn't have done before me. So I'm just kind of scratching my head. Why didn't they done it? Now, you'll notice there's a quote. Kesed occurs 248 times in the Hebrew Bible. 
in the majority of cases, 149 of them, the King James Bible translates this as mercy following the Septuagint. The LXX is an abbreviation for Septuagint. And following the Septuagint, which puts in Elias, which is the New Testament word for mercy. Less frequent translations are kindness, 40 times, loving kindness, 30 times. By the way, that's the one I like the best. That's closer, loving kindness. Goodness, 12 times, kindly, 5 times, merciful, 4 times, favor, 3 times, and good. Goodliness, pie, and pity once each. Only two instances of, this, of the noun in its negative sense are in the text. Translated reproach in Proverbs 14.34 and wicked thing in Leviticus 20, verse 17. So that's a quote, and those are uh, statistics. Now, the real challenge in defining this word kesed is largely because the Septuagint has translated it mercy 149 out of 248 uses. Now, to define this word as mercy because a Septuagint does is giving too much weight to a translation. Every translation has flaws and weaknesses because fallible men make it. The best way to define any major word in the Bible is to see how it is used in the Bible. How about that, folks? That seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? But it doesn't seem like it's practiced all that much. The best way to define any major word in the Bible is to see how it is used in the Bible. To allow a translation made several centuries after the Hebrew canon was finished completely overlooks how the word is used in the Hebrew text of Scripture. But this is how most men, they will say, well... The Septuagint says this, and they will take it. Now, I have news for you. The Septuagint was made some several hundred years after the canon of the Old Testament was finished. It was a translation from Hebrew into Greek because a lot of the Jews were living other places, and they didn't even know how to speak Hebrew anymore, much less read it. So you have unsaved men making a translation. Now, you see the problem there? Unsaved men making a translation? Now, they're translating the original God-breathed documents, and it's unsaved men translating them. Which one are you going to follow? Which do you think is going to be more accurate, folks? You're going to take the unsaved men? Not me. I'm not. I, I just, I tend to, and, and I'm not completely, but I tend to largely put the, the Septuagint on the side as being interesting to see how they thought of this word. Because there are some times when I think the Septuagint does help you understand a Hebrew word. But there's a lot of times when it doesn't at all. And the Septuagint has some places. You can talk to Pastor Dave about it. He's, he's done a lot of work in the Septuagint. He can tell you there are places that it's just, it's just crazy. It's just a really bad translation. It really is. And so I don't give... A, that's the problem that we face here is that what I'm doing is I'm butting against what people have gone for. They've taken the Septuagint. I think a copy made by unsaved men several hundred years later is probably not as accurate as the God-breathed original. Would you agree with me, folks? So I think we can kind of set that aside. Now, there's another problem to consider, and this one is a little bit more insidious. Many scholars will, take the meaning of, will look at the meaning of Hebrew words by looking at cognate forms in other ancient languages. Now, there were languages, Aramaic, there were different languages around Israel that, were, that used the same basic word in their language. And so, what they have done, and there's a quote in here, I have one, where... They've taken the form of how someone other, and it's this cognitive form, how the word was used over here in Aramaic or in, in, in uh, Sanskrit or whatever, and they said that's what it means in Hebrew. You're going to another culture, another people, and you're saying they use the word this way. You know what? You've got a problem with that. Yeah. There's, a, there's something I learned in Spanish that will show you how silly that is. 
in Spanish, there was a, state, was a statement I learned in first year, first year Spanish was, no, no me tomes el pelo. Does anybody speak Spanish enough to no me tomes el pelo? What does that mean? Don't drink my hair? Literally, don't drink my hair? Yeah, now, that's translated in English as, you're pulling my leg. Now, why is it translated? We wouldn't, would it be fair to say that that's, that's how we should understand uh, being kidding people? Be, we don't use, don't drink my hair in English. We, don't, we just don't do that. Yeah, I don't know. It depends. It depends. I suppose I like dark roast coffee. So anybody, if you have dark colored hair, I'll, I'll drink that. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? If you go to another language and see how they use a word, and you bring that word into your language, and you're also using it, and they use it this way, so it's, it's got to be used. That's what's been done with this word. I have a quote down here that shows you it's been done, and that is not scholarship. That is not scholarship. <sighs> Why should we do that to the Word of God? So now, how do we arrive at our conclusions? Well, we're going to, you know, I'll tell you what. Let's stop here, and we'll take our, our break, because I'm just starting on the bottom of page 5 of how we arrived at our conclusions.